0: about the objective that I had, the pryorjan that I had in mind. And this pr- prayojan actually comes from observing what is in existence in Indian universities at this point in time. And what we observe is that Indian psychology is either marginal or it is non-existent. And what I want to achieve with this talk is to basically generate awareness so that the discipline itself is understood to have some legitimacy. And as we move down the line, it gets firmly established and entrenched within Indian academia. It's absolutely wonderful. And I would say a matter of chance that uh, when uh, Dr. Nagaraj Patuniji uh, started the conversation today, he spoke about Pondicherry, and Indian psychology, and uh, I was very much part of that movement, if you will. It is true that in a certain sense, this movement started uh, in Pondicherry earlier, there was a group which was uh, running uh, a conference series on integral psychology, and then it was decided that we should have something called Indian psychology, and of course, you know, professors, uh, Anand Paranjpe, uh, who was a stalwart figure uh, in this entire movement, was very much a part of that. So in 2002, uh, a group got together, a group of academics. I was very young at that point in time. And uh, we came up with what is what is known as Pondicherry Manifesto of Indian Psychology. And it is from there, that the process start. Now, you know, this is 2002. But I want to contextualize my own involvement in Indian psychology. And I think that probably will be helpful, you know, to uh, some other people who are involved in this process. So I'm talking about early 90s, when I was a student at Delhi University of chemistry. And It was around that period that I was beset with deep existential questions. Who am I? What is the meaning of my life? What is the vocation that I should be choosing? What is education for? You know, some very deep fundamental questions. And despite the fact that I was doing very well in chemistry at Delhi University, I decided to make a uh, a shift and I joined. Master's in Applied Psychology in Delhi University itself. Now, you have to understand that I was a student of science. And when you are a student of science, particularly in the preliminary stages or elementary stages, the distinction between right and wrong, true and false is very, very clear. This was the mindset with which I actually went to studying psychology. When I went to the department, and when my exposure started, what I found was that there were many different psychological uh, schools. All these different schools were talking about different uh, issues, same issues from different perspectives. And they were all ascribing to themselves the status of a scientist. All of them were scientists and all these disciplines were scientific in nature. So this young consciousness got completely flustered and bewildered. I was like, "What is what's going on here? You know, which which school or which perspective is true, or which one is truer than the uh, than the rest?" This was a fundamental question that actually emerged, and what that led for me was basically investigating certain fundamental assumptions of the discipline itself and science itself. Of course, through that process, you know, I got introduced to the idea of paradigm, prim- primarily a pa- paradigm as described by Thomas Kuhn, where he talks about disciplinary matrix and shared exemplars. I won't go into the details
1: you
0: know most of us will be familiar with these descriptions but basically with by disciplinary matrix what it means is that every paradigm or every framework has certain assumptions that are not subjected to critical examination they are considered as veritable truths for example example the paradigm of reductionism reductionism primarily says that the ultimate reality Or the ultimate nature of reality can be understood by broken by breaking it into smallest parts and those parts will basically reveal the ultimate nature of reality this fundamental assumption by most people who are working within the paradigm is never questioned similarly you have shared exemplars where you know, there's a certain unanimity with respect to the methodology which you're going to use as you pers- pursue uh, truth or knowledge within that particular framework or paradigm. Now once I understood this, you know, it became very clear to me that all the different schools that of psychology that I was encountering was basically following different paradigms. To move the story forward, I got introduced to Guba in the paradigm dialogue. And in the paradigm dialogue, Guba says that paradigm essentially has three components, ontology, epistemology, and methodology. Ontology, the theory of being or the nature of ultimate reality. Epistemology, the theory of knowledge. Basically, how do we know what we know? And methodology, the methodology which is followed for pursuing the nature of ultimate reality. Now, when we take this description into account, and we take all the various traditions that we have in India, traditions of Vedanta, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, and so on and so forth, you will find that they all have described enunciations on the ultimate nature of reality. For Vedanta, it is Brahma, that one entity, which has become everything. In terms of Buddhism, of Buddha, of course, we do not know anything. He did not speak about the metaphysical matters at all. But as far as later Buddhists are concerned, the idea of Shunya is there. Or at least, you know, there's one particular school of Buddhism which speaks about that. There are variations there as well. All these different schools. They have clearly articulated epistemologies. In fact, I would say that all these schools are unanimous in having one particular epistemology. And what is that epistemology? Of course, they talk about the distinction between subject and object, which is fundamental with respect to any epistemology. And all these various traditions basically say that the dichotomy between subject and object, and all other dichotomies have to be transcended. And as you transcend these dichotomies, it is also necessary that you b- go beyond senses. And as you are going beyond these binaries, you are also transcending the mind. There is this unanimity in all these traditions. And of course, there are different methodologies in various traditions, various Indian traditions that speak about or address very categorically the ways of transcending the senses and transcending the mind. Now, when you when you take this description into account, and it is very unfortunate that you know that I have to use the framework or the paradigm of Guba to be even enunciating this, all these traditions become legitimate ways of inquiry. Traditions which has philosophy in them and also has psychology. But this is not recognized in India at this point in time. These traditions are not looked at as psycho-spiritual schools. On the contrary, because of the colonization that we have undergone and because of the deep uh, inferiority which colonization does in every population what has happened is that we are transposing the Western paradigm on our situation. We have categorized all these traditions as religion. And once we have boxed them into the category of religion, all the different wars that the West has been waging against religion are transposed on these traditions as well. And what has happened is that this particular process has suppressed these psycho-spiritual traditions or schools within Indian academia, particularly in psychology departments, quite massively. It is deeply problematic. So what I'm trying to do with this talk today is that we need to recognize the legitimacy of Indian psychology. And what do I mean by Indian psychology at this point in time? What I mean by Indian psychology is that when you look at different Indian traditions, there are certain commonalities and certain differences amongst the traditions. When you take all those commonalities into account, those commonalities basically give you an umbrella in which different and various schools that I mentioned earlier can be properly studied and investigated. This is something that we need to do as we are emerging from the consequences of colonization. So instead of looking at these traditions, at religious traditions and becoming absolutely political about them, What is required at this point in time is that we look at them as traditions that have ontology, epistemology and methodology of knowledge pursuit and give them the kind of legitimacy that they require within Indian departments. Now that is one part of the story. You know there's another part of the story which is usually not spoken about and (laughs) I'm not, I, you know, though it may appear at this point in time that I'm making a tall claim, but I'm actually not. Modern psychology essentially has been inspired by the Indian traditions in a very, very big way. And that's why when I come, uh, you know, to this forum today,
1: <clears throat>
0: what I've done is that I've brought some evidence and I will begin with. Jung, somebody you know who is uh, who is very well known. Here is a book by J.J. Clark, you know, titled Jung and Eastern Thought. J.J. Clark is a professor um, in England, and this publication is by Routledge. This is a very detailed work where he's talking about the Eastern, quote unquote, Eastern influences on Jung. The influences, the the Eastern or the Asian influences on, on Jung started very early in his life. His father was a professor of Asian traditions, Asian religions and all along his life he has been working with various traditions including yoga. In early 30s he was actually giving lectures on Kundalini Yoga, or what he calls as Kundalini Yoga, and here is a book. You know, it is titled "The Psychology of Kundalini Yoga." The lectures that he gave have been compiled by uh, uh, this gentleman, Sonu Shamsudani, and uh, and published. This is Princeton University Press publication. There's another book. That J.J. J. Clark has written, titled "Oriental Enlightenment: The Encounter Between Asian and Western Thought," and when he says Asian, he basically means Indian and Chinese. And when he and when he talks about Chinese, he basically talks about Buddhism. We all know where Buddhism came from. In this particular book, in great detail, he's talking about Eastern or Indian influences on major Western thinkers, including the psychologists, and the claim that he makes is that even the idea of unconscious, which was picked up by Freud, traveled from India to Europe. And Nietzsche, of course, you know, was 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 talking about unconscious, and there is uh, evidence that Nietzsche had influenced Freud. You know, when it comes to Jung, of course, the uh, the details with which scholars have gone into investigating his Eastern or Indian influences are quite significant. You know, uh, interestingly, um, uh, Professor Anand Paranjpe is doing some work on, uh, on the on the on Indian influences on on Freud. You know, it should be it should it should be out in 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 some time. There's another piece, you know, which um, Clark does not talk about, but I want to make that point. In the 19th century, Sanskrit studies had traveled to Germany in a very big way. The Germans were translating the Sanskrit text in a very, very big way. And the first lab on psychology was established in Germany in 1879. And when that lab was established, The central idea of pursuing psychology or psychological studies was introspection. Anybody who's familiar with any tradition from India would know how introspection is important. Atmijan, that is from where the whole story begins. Let's move forward. When you come to the schools of humanistic psychology and transpersonal psychology, once again, you find decisive Indian influence on these schools. I'm not saying this, JJ Clark is saying this and he has provided evidence. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that the appropriation as Kiranji spoke about, has been going on for centuries. We are not familiar with the details we will only become familiar with the details if we study the indian traditions as well as the western traditions there's a lot of work that needs to be done what are we doing in indian psychology dep- uh, uh, you know in psychology departments in india at this point in time this work is not happening this work has to happen because appropriations have happened and indian thought and indian traditions have influenced the growth of Western psychology and they continue to influence the growth of Western psychology even as we speak. This needs to become a proper area of study. I cannot emphasize this more. Now, <clears throat> how do we go about it? You know, once again, because of the colonization that uh, we suffered. What has happened is that our fluency in traditional languages for most of us has been impacted quite severely. You know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not criticizing us for this, but it's an outcome of uh, uh, the, the history that we share. The good news is that there is a lot of very good literature by yogis on these subject matters is available in English and Sri Aurobindo is just one of them you have Raman Maharshi you know many of his disciples basically translated the things that he was saying and he would ensure that whatever was getting published you know from the ashram was true You have Paramahansa Yoganand. You have the tradition of Swami Vivekananda. You have a living guru in Amachi. Now, instead of looking at these people as religious figures and not really taking notice of them and giving them the prestige or the legitimacy that they deserve in psychological departments, we need to do something different. We need to look at them as people who have spoken about truth, about matters that are psycho-spiritual in nature, matters which are philosophical in orientation, psychological in orientation. Sri Aurobindo once made the remark, yoga is nothing but practical psychology. Krishat Kaipaji was uh, speaking about the five koshas, the pancha koshas in the writings of Sri Aurobindo, you will find minute details about the characteristics of all these various planes. All these various planes are impacting our psyche, our psychology, day in and out. If we become aware of their workings, what happens is that we also begin to gain handle on transforming them. Do we teach Aurobindo in uh, psychology departments in India at this point in time? Definitely not. People will be up and arms. you know, a Hindu figure has come. Can we get beyond religious, secular, scientific, religious divide and look at these figures as truth seekers and truth propagators? I think if we do that, We will be able to advance our cause in a very big way. We'll also be able to establish Indian psychology on a more firm ground. And psychology and Hinduism can become part of the larger umbrella or the canopy that we are talking about. And we have had, you know, this kind of model or framework. From the ancient times at nalanda universities there were 18 schools of buddhism that were simultaneously ta- uh, taught many other schools of what is known as hinduism today were also taught so an approach of something like this is required today an approach which is extremely flexible in mind and flexible in heart what it will do for us is that it will allow us to bring many different traditions into the fold. And just like knowledge seekers, truth seekers, we can look at all those different traditions, find commonalities and differences, or basically pick one tradition with which our constitution completely agrees and pursue that for our own sake. Psycho spiritual transformation.
1: A few years ago, there was a, a circular from uh, UGC, University Grants Commission of India, uh, to introduce uh, Indian psychology as part of mainstream postgraduate psychology programs in uh, India. And uh, as expected, there was a big protest from uh, the different universities that that was. Uh, Safronization of uh, psychology uh, uh, syllabus, and in that context, I read uh, an interview by a Delhi University psychology professor defending the decision of the government, and in that he had to uh, tell that uh, the examples that are provided in the textbooks and the study material that is provided currently in all the psychology programs are all coming from the life of uh, the Western society, United States. The place names, the personal names, the, you know, the kind of uh, restaurants and cultures and the television program names that are mentioned in the examples, in the case studies, in everything, they are not understandable to Indian students. That is so pathetic that you have to take these routes to defend that an Indian has to study psychology from the Indian sources, ancient Indian sources. Why not uh, we directly give those arguments? Uh, Why not we give the argument that uh, Indian university students have to be proud of their heritage? uh and it has to come from ancient indian sources but the professor of delhi university was not able to make this because he was afraid uh, that he would be branded he would be labeled as belonging to a certain political party and uh, all that yeah the way i look
0: at it is that you know when when you when you pursue truth for the sake of truth then things emerge see when i went to psychology department for my master's, I was searching for truth and I searched for truth intensely. I spent you know, hours sitting in the library going through original writings of many different psychologists, Western psychologists. And that resulted in a certain confusion and that confusion resulted in a certain resolution. and that certain that certain resolution also engendered a certain kind of knowledge that knowledge by the grace of the divine i own you know i embody it's part of my being and that is why purely from the perspective of epistemology i can show the validity of this pursuit our traditions have certain validity, validity embedded in truth. You know, in in our universities, we basically need to ask fundamental questions about epistemology. Why should we accept whatever is coming from the West as veritable truth? And in fact, when you investigate as I, Uh, showed you or gave examples, many of these ideas have actually traveled from India and they have passed through the cosmological paradigm of the West and have got interpreted in a certain way, in a certain sense. So even when that appropriation is happening, it is passing through Western cosmological prism. And of course, you know uh, the, the issues of ethics also involved in that appropriation. We are not going there. But what I'm saying is that you know that appropriations have happened, and uh, you know different terminologies for concepts that have been absolutely endemic to our traditions have been used this recovery can only happen through knowledge pursuit if we don't inquire deeply then it will become very easy for our detractors you know to label something label us with something today i don't think i can be labeled i understand western psychology i understand western paradigm i understand western cosmology and by the grace of the divine i also understand you know, how Indian cosmology works. And what is the source of these Indian psychological concepts? So for me, in order to establish this within universities, does not have any political agenda. It has an an agenda based in pursuit of knowledge and truth. And that is what interests me.